Well, aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> uh, Why is it your uh, favourite passage, Linda? Yes. Oh, okay. I thought you had a bit of a cheeky grin on your face when you said it. <laughs> um, we're going to be tackling a hard topic this morning. Uh, it's a controversial topic, the topic of men and women, how men and women relate. And you might be finding yourself asking, why? Why are we doing that today? Well, a few reasons. Uh, the first one, um, most important one, is because, well, uh, Tom and Matt need it. So let's... Uh, that's what I've sort of, I, I, New world coming up, and I saw the, you know, Tom. And, oh, man, there's there's a couple of blokes who need Ephesians five, so we're we're doing it for them. It's no, partly it's because of the long weekend. We've got, um, I figure, we can hit a topic like this because you've got time tomorrow to re- recover. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be able to process it and get over it. Um, but uh, we're between series, and we've just had a wonderful focus on family. It, it, it's um, there's something beautiful about this whole experience, wasn't there? Where um, and Tom, uh, Renee's awesome. Awesome uh, hopes and dreams. It, um, what you see there is the is the beautiful thing that God intends that a man and woman would come together, and by their coming together, would from their, an act of love produce a child. See a child come to be raised by those that have brought the child to be uh, into a secure home, into a loving home where they can grow and flourish. Um, that's God's, it's a gift of God, family, that's his intention for us. Now I know that some families are different, I know that some of you amongst us um, haven't been able to go that process and adoption's been your journey and just want to honour you for where you're at, uh, praise God for the opportunities he's given you, I, just, uh, we really are very grateful and thankful to God for what you're doing. Um, but ordinarily that's God's great purpose, that uh, family would be formed. At the heart therefore of family is the man and the woman, the way they relate together and paying attention to that is critical for the health of the family. But it raises questions for us. Is there a right way for a husband and wife to relate together? Is it the kind of thing that men and women can just, you work out together what you want to be and how you want to do it and it's entirely freely up to you? Or is there a better way, a good way or a right way to do husband and wife relationships? Now just asking that question raises the controversy, doesn't it? Hearing the passages read for us raises the controversy. So uh, Ephesians chapter 5 where we're told about the husband and wife relating as uh, head and submission. Did you find yourself cringing? Uh, these are difficult words in our current cultural context. So I want to dig into all of that um, and uh, I'm going to pray for help before we do it. So let me, let me do that for us. Uh, if you're a praying person, if you know the Lord God, let's uh, pray to him for our time together. Father, we do ask, please, that you might, um, you might help me speak what's true. Um, please help me be faithful to what you teach. Help us uh, to be soft, uh, soft-hearted, thoughtful, deep, in our minds, but soft-hearted towards what you've given us. And we pray that by this you might cause great good, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one, I want to suggest to you one of the reasons, there's, well, there's a few reasons why we find this whole topic difficult and controversial in a way that never was the case. For centuries past, no one found this stuff controversial. It was all very straightforward. But in the last bunch of years, it is very difficult. And there's two reasons, I think. One reason is the cultural context within which we live now has changed profoundly. And another reason, though, is because we, we, in that cultural context, we misunderstand what the Bible's teaching. So those words that are used there trigger all kinds of associations that I want us to dig in and understand rightly. So the cultural context... My plan this morning, therefore, is to think about the cultural context and how it's shaped us. 
But also think about what the Bible teaches, the way we've misunderstood it and the way we're to understand it correctly. And then to come back and think about culture again. There's the kind of movement of this morning. Let me start with culture. We live at a time that is uh, known as the second most extraordinary sexual revolution in history. The last 60, 70 years have been a massive sexual revolution. Only the second most extraordinary, I want to talk to you about the first, if I rem- don't remember, make sure you remind me to ask you about it, tell you about it, but it's only the second most extraordinary sexual revolution. It's, it's, the, it's the experience where we're pursued as a society freedom. Now, there's been many other things we've been about as well, but the sexual revolution has particularly been about freedom, liberation from past patterns, being freed from taboos, being freed from religious expectations, being freed from the history of patterns and behaviours in the way we ought to be, particularly for women, that women might be freed to be whoever they want to be now. Be like men, be as free as men, be equal to men. Uh, In our society, that's been very much the driver culturally, this sexual revolution. Um, And along with that kind of desire for freedom, for women to to get out from under, to be able to be all that they want to be, um, along with that is a narrative. Uh, And the narrative of almost all revolutions operates like this, but the narrative is past is bad, present is better, future will be even better. That's almost all revolutions function like that because what gives impetus and energy to a revolution is the motivation to continue to pay the price of the revolution. And what motivates you to pay the price of the revolution is when you look back at where we were, how bad it was, look at what we've done to improve things by this pursuit of freedom. This pursuit of freedom has freed us and brought great good from that evil past. And if we continue to push the freedom button, we'll get better and better and better. So that's the narrative that goes along with this pursuit of freedom. Um, And um, the particular thing of the past that we want to be freed from as a society these days is the Christian past. If there's something about the past that's been oppressive and restrictive that we need to get out from under, and women need to get out from under, it's that patriarchal Christianity that has ruined our relationships and created so much hurt and angst and uh, hostility. And so we need to get out from that past, you see. That's been the narrative and discussion. Add to this, of course, the horror of abuse, domestic... Now, I'm going to to touch some pretty tricky topics today, (laughs) as you're probably already aware. I'm going to touch on the topic of domestic violence. Just to alert you, uh, I know some of you are suffering in these contexts and I want to... um, I want to be gentle and kind and careful. Um, I'm going to talk about sex. Just alert you to that. So uh, we won't go into the details of sex, but we'll be talking about some very close personal issues, just to be alert to that. We're going to have a question time at the end of church. So after church is finished, uh, I'll be around here and uh, there'll be opportunity if you want to come and discuss things further or push back, debate, disagree. We're a church that we want to actually have open and honest discussion together. Um, but abuse, we, we, part, of the, part of the view of the history that we've had is the sense that it's created a view of male entitlement. And that male entitlement has been understood to be one of the major causal drivers of domestic violence. And we want to get rid of that, quite rightly. Domestic violence is an horrific thing. And uh, we, we pray and trust that you are pursuing a different lifestyle. Um, but there's the cultural context. Freedom. Freedom from restraint. 
freedom from taboos, freedom to be whatever you want, freedom sexually to live the life of sex. If you want to have a family that's a nuclear family, husband and wife, married for life, with, sure, go for it, you're free to do that. But if you want to have a marriage that's not married, that's de facto and just living together, be free to do that. If you want to have many sexual partners, be free to do that. If you want to pursue a hookup culture, pursue that. If you want, if you want to be single and, and casual sex, you see, whatever you want to, free. That's what we're pursuing the sexual revolution, to be free. Now, into that context, to hear a word like Ephesians chapter 5 about the shape of a man-woman relationship where there is the expectation of order, headship submission, wow, it almost causes our brains to explode. Could such a thing be believed today? That takes us back to the old, old times, where women particularly were oppressed and dominated and controlled. And, and it's that Christian past. We are not going back there. It's wrong. But is that reaction right? Is the cultural, has the cultural context really helped us to make sense of what's best in men-women relationships? And is the Bible saying what our culture says it's saying? You see what I'm trying to wrestle with here? Big things to talk about. There's the cultural context. Let me talk about the misunderstanding. Uh, part of our reaction to this language is a misunderstanding of what the words mean. And it is one of the things the Bible itself warns us about. Uh, it is the case that uh, people are have a great potential for twisting and distorting good things. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about the danger of people taking Paul's writings and twisting them to their own ends. And tragically and sadly, in church contexts, there has been a great twisting of Paul's words. It has been the case, it is the case, that some men in the history of the church... Um, have misapplied, misread, selectively applied various verses of the Bible to justify their abusive relationship with their wife. The Bible says, as the man controls and batters, the Bible says, well, let me just say as plainly as I can, the Bible also says violence is horrendous, physical abuse is dreadful. Manipulation is dreadful. And it also says, husbands, verse 25, you are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You are to love the, your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, not made her fit in with him. The very Bible that you may be quoting to justify your entitlement and power is the same Bible that condemns that practice wholeheartedly and straightforwardly. Um, if you are amongst us this morning and you are suffering abuse in your marriage relationship, I want to come back to this again, but can I just encourage you uh, warmly to come and speak to me or one of the pastoral staff. You will be taken very seriously. We take these things very seriously. And men... Work hard to understand what the Bible says and do not abuse it, twist and distort it. We'll come back to this as well. 
Sin twists all good things, the Bible as well. It also twists our understanding of freedom. The whole sexual revolution, I think, is an expression of twisting a good thing. We'll come to that in a moment. You see, what we've seen in this passage is controversial because of the cultural context we're in, because of twisting and distorting the words and applying them badly. Um, uh, let, me, um, let me now take us into a right understanding of the Bible and then back into culture. Right understanding of the Bible. Come with me to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31. Linda read it for us earlier. Now, as we come to Proverbs chapter 31, let let me just show you what's happening here. What you have here in chapter 31, verse 10, is a portrait of a wife who is the ideal wife, the noble wife. Um, It actually comes from the words, chapter 31, verse 1, of the mother of the king. So the sayings of King Lemuel, an inspired utterance his mother taught him. This is mum's advice to the king. And her advice is, don't chase after women, verse 3. Don't spend your strength on chasing women. Um, And, verse 4, 5, 6, don't chase after alcohol. You're a king, you're a leader. Don't give yourself to drink because it'll ruin your ability to lead well. This is mum's advice to the king. And actually, just notice that, mums. The king took notice. He wrote it down. Your sons will thank you for the advice you give them. Um, uh, Verse 8, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. Be the king who cares for others. And verse 10, here's the woman you should chase. That's the context. Here's the wife you should pursue. Now, as you go through this, I know many women read this chapter and just find themselves crushed with expectations. Um, Is that right? Am I got the sense of things? That's not why. You're not meant to read it like that. What... what, um, what the mother is saying is not that here's what a, here's what the week of the here's what a, a seven day week looks like for the best woman. It's not that. What what the mum is saying is here's the kind of woman who values these who is like this kind of person. That's what you're after. And she illustrates with all the activities and practices of the woman. Um, let me take you through it. What now? Actually, here's the thought experiment. Given our cultural context, bad old old is bad. Oppressive, restrictive, present is better, free to be who we want to be. In that cultural context, what do you think a book in the old, old ancient history is going to say about the ideal woman? What would you expect a book in ancient history will say is the ideal woman, especially the Christian biblical history? Just think for a moment. What should the Bible say is the ideal woman, given our cultural narrative about the past. Don't say anything, but just think. What do you expect it to say, the ideal wife? Let me give you some words that I think might come up in your mind. Given the way our culture thinks about the past, how bad it is, oppressive, restrictive, I think it would say, it would say a Bible thing would say that a wife should be, the ideal wife, covered up, at home, silent, subservient, mouse-like, controlled by a powerful husband. I think that's what you would imagine it should be saying if the cultural narrative's correct. But now notice what it actually does say. It's a profound surprise. 
Let me read it to you. Verse 10, a wife of noble character who can find she's worth far more than rubies. She's more precious than rubies. Wisdom is more precious than rubies. Now the wife is more precious than rubies. She is profoundly precious. Verse 11, her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax, works with eager hands. She's like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female slaves. You can see this is the wife of a king. Slaves. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Now start to see some of the surprises here. Yes, the ideal wife is concerned with family and husband and home. She's a hard worker. Verse 17, her arms are strong for her task. Uh, She is someone who gives herself joyfully, though, to this task and gladly to it. She is at home, she is with the husband, she is with the children, she clothes them. Um, Her children uh, are dressed wonderfully. Verse 21, when it snows, she has no fear, for all of them are clothed well. But see verse 16? She considers a field and buys it. She's into real estate. She has a property portfolio. (laughs) And out of her earnings... Well, I think you could translate that. She buys a pub. <laughs> Isn't that right? <laughs> she, she plants a vineyard to make wine. She's a businesswoman. She sets about her tasks vigorously. In the, her tra- she, verse 18, she sees that her trading is profitable. Come down to verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them. She has a job on the side. Verse 26, she speaks with wisdom. And faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Does this sound at all like the woman that should be? Old, bad, oppressive? No, no, no. What you have here is a woman who is energetic, active, engaged in the home, outside of the home, well known for it. Brings great honour by her work and activity. And here's the thing, particularly verse 30. Look at the last couple of verses. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The mother says to the king, find a woman whose centre is not you, not the kids, but God whose life is defined in her relationship with God, who fears him above all. For that she is to be praised. But here's the thing for us, notice this, she is not subservient. She is not being taken advantage of. She is not being used. Remember, this is the advice of the king's mother to the son. Here's the woman you want as your wife. This kind of woman... And here it is, one who is capable, competent and fully in charge of her own life. I love that bit. She is fully in charge of her own life. She is not micromanaged by the king. She considers the field and buys it. She sells and makes and so on. She plants the vineyard. She gives wisdom and instruction to others. This is not at all how it's meant to be according to our culture. But this is what the Bible actually says. 
You know, here's the thing. It's not that the Bible has been tried and found wanting by our culture. It's that our culture has not even understood what the Bible says and so properly tried it. Our society has done such a good job of poisoning the past and the Bible that many in our culture are not even interested in looking at it to see if it's from God and of worth. They've just made up the decision without even considering the evidences. And I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you've not looked at the Bible yourself as an adult, maybe as a kid you did, but if you're not as an adult, there, there are profound truths and riches here to be had. And in particular, there's an opportunity to come into relationship with the living God through the merits of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pursue these things. We have been poisoned with a progressive narrative. All in the past was bad, especially the Bible and Christianity. All in the present is good and better, getting better if we just keep pursuing freedom. Both those bits of the narrative are wrong. The, bad is, the past is not bad. The present is not as good as we think it is. And the future will not get better as we push the button freedom more, freedom more, freedom more. We've been sold a lie. And people are now starting to see it in the secular world. This is not just Christians. I want to show you one particular person who's just recently written what I think is a very helpful and wonderful book, a woman called Louise Perry. Um, she's a British journalist author who's uh, written The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. She's not a Christian. She's not got, I've listened to a number of things and so on. She's talked at various places and she gives no evidence of a Christian faith. In fact, in various contexts, had an opportunity to and doesn't. No, no, she's someone who grew up as a feminist and then worked in a rape crisis centre and began to have her feminist narrative torn apart, dismantled, as she began to face the reality of what's going on in this sexual revolution. She says the sexual revolution of the last 70 years has not made the world a better place. Actually, actually what she says is this, it's... it's, it's given us some improvements in some areas but overall it's not made the world a better place except for a select few the powerful powerful women have benefited greatly and mostly men have benefited from the sexual revolution now why why does she make this point because freedom the freedom from does not deliver what we hoped it might deliver, equality of the sexes. It hasn't delivered equality of the sexes because, she says, the sexes are, and I'm going to shock you with this, but she says it hasn't delivered equality of the sexes, freedom from has not delivered equality of the sexes because the sexes are different. <laughs> I know. Unbelievable. But she said it. And argues the case. Now, what I'm about to tell you it comes from her stuff, but other stuff around the place. I've, I've added a few things in. This whole discussion about men and women and whether we're different or not is a very hotly debated area. And it's hotly debated for various obvious reasons, uh, as you can probably work out. There's a great deal at stake ideologically about this. If, it, if men and women are different biologically, then for the secular world, not the Christian world, for the secular world it threatens the equality agenda because the equality agenda in the secular world needs to have equivalent sameness to be equal. For Christians, 
Our equality as men and women resides in God's declaration of who we are, not how you perform. It's, it's just a given that men and women are created in the image of God, beautifully different. Differences doesn't threaten equality for us, but it does in the secular world. So it's a great fight to prove we're the same. Now, it's a contested space, but what she does, I think, very helpfully is pay attention to the most obvious differences between men and women. Let me take you through some of the things she says with some extras. She gives a list. What are the differences between men and women? Well, the first most obvious one is that men are bigger and stronger than women. Crazy, I know, right? But we are, men's upper body strength is significantly stronger just by virtue of testosterone when it hits. So at the age of 13, 14, 15, a young boy gets hit with testosterone, changes their whole physiology. It makes them faster, stronger, bigger. This is a reality. But also more prone to aggression. These things are incontrovertible. Um, but the, there's also a difference with respect to sex, the act of sex itself. Now, you know, the, the act itself uh, is very different between men and women. Uh, for men, it's external and given. For women, it's internal and received. That f just fact of biology does something to who we are as men and women in relationship sexually. More, she draws attention particularly to the consequences of the sex act. And she makes the point that the sex act, the consequences of it, fall entirely on the woman. Um, if, if a sex act goes towards conception, only one of the two who have had sex gets pregnant. It's the woman every time. Um, all of which means a sexual relationship creates an immediate inequality. You might say, well, there's contraception, but contraception, she points out, is very hit, you know, it's, it's not 100%. So every time a woman has sex with a man, she is taking all the risks. Um, she's the one who has to carry the child, having gotten pregnant for nine months, which inevitably creates a maternal bond for the vast majority of women, not all women, but the vast creates a maternal bond, which the man doesn't have. She has to give birth. You know, I have sired four kids. I could have been playing golf or surfing when they were born. I didn't need to be there. But their mother did. <laughs> it's just a, it's a reality of the differences between men and women. And then the child that's born needs to be fed. And it's the woman who is designed to feed and suckle. All of which creates a further bond, a maternal bond, which is unequal between the man and the woman. There's a massive difference. I'll give you another difference. She calls it the socio-sexuality difference. The vast majority of women, she says, if given the choice, would not choose casual sex with a number of partners, but if given the choice, would choose sex with one partner for intimacy, love and connection. But the majority of men are able to disassociate the sex act from the emotion in a way that for a woman to do is breaking a part of who she is for the vast majority of women, not all. Now, she makes the point that that massively shifts the playing field in the advantages of men in a context where the revolutions occurred where we free us from all taboos sexually. 
So there's now no longer incentives to be monogamous, married, men, woman. It's, it's choose your own adventure sexually. If you want to pursue casual, if you want to pursue marriage, if, choose whatever. In that context, she says, it thoroughly advantages the men and a few powerful women. Because it's the men who can roam the field. But it's the women who get hurt, abused, bruised, pregnant, left with a child. So it's women and children who are the losers in the sexual revolution. The more we are liberated in the way of the sexual revolution, it's more women who lose out, except the most powerful. Friends, we've been fed a lie. The present is not all it's cracked up to be. There have been some advantages. But by and large, very far, it's been a very great disaster. And the past wasn't bad. Proverbs 31 is a wonderfully beautiful picture of what a woman is meant to be in relationship with a man. She is equal to him. God's purpose is that she be fully in charge of her life. And the man in this, I don't know if you noticed in Proverbs 31, um, verse 28, her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Notice that. The king delights in the fact that his wife is fully in charge of her life. He is thrilled and calls her blessed that she's like, Proverbs 31 says she's like. He is not the micromanager. He is not insecure. He is not chafing at the fact that she makes decisions and spends money and gets, lives a life outside of the home. He's not chafing under any of that. He's delighted. That's the Bible's picture. Are you surprised? Now, I don't know the shape of your marriage as you're sitting here today. Both men and women bring sin into all that we do. Both of us have needs and hurts and fears. We want things from the other, the other wants and so on. We have our insecurities, both men and women, and the potential for harm of each other is great, physically, verbally, emotionally. We have great sin that works in our lives. But men, you, we have the greater physical power. It's just a fact. And so we're the ones who must take greater care of women. Now, I know in the feminist culture, the whole idea of men being taught to protect and provide for a woman sounds to the woman to be demeaning. But the fact is, men have power. You can't take that away. We need to learn to use it in a God-honouring way, which is where we use it for the, for the sake of others, to love and serve, protect and care. In domestic violence, it's true that men and women both are guilty, but men far more than women. And men far more damage is done. Men need to take much greater care of their precious wife, to love. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5 is a beautiful passage. Come with me back to Ephesians 5. Husbands, verse 25. Now, there's much to be said here. We've only got a few minutes. Husbands, love your wives. 
just like Christ died for her. He didn't use her. He didn't abuse her. He gave himself for her and her good husbands. That's what you're called to. But notice this in verse 25. Men, you are never told to police your wife and the pursuit of her role. This is absolutely, the Bible is absolutely revolutionary in its cultural context. Uh, there's lots, in the ancient world, there's lots of teaching from men about how men are to be in marriage and in relationships in the ancient world. You know, Aristotle, these kinds of great authors. I've read a lot of them. I can't claim to have read all of them, but I've read a lot of them. And all of them, well, almost all of them address all. They all either address the husband or just speak in the third person. And when they address the husband, they say, you've got to rule, you've got to be in control, you've got to lead. The Bible, when it addresses the husband, never once tells the husband that you are to control, rule, boss your wife. It says to the husband, you're to love your wife. You're to die for your wife. This is... In the ancient world, it was like a bomb went off. And here was the first greatest sexual revolution. Right here. Where men were called on to completely um, restrict and restrain their power rather than use it for themselves. Restrict it for the good of others and particularly a woman to love and care and provide. Men, you need to read Proverbs 31 and then Genesis 2 and note the radical equality Read 1 Corinthians 11, that she is your glory. Read 1 Peter 3, that she is a co-heir. This is the Bible, it's a surprising book, isn't it? And if you find yourself chafing at what appears to be the failure of your wife to do what she's called on to do, realise she's almost certainly chafing at your failures as well. And the key for both of you, as you're sitting here today, is to talk to each other. Find out what each other thinks. Discuss together what you think the shape of marriage ought to look like. Do it with the Bible open. But talk it through. Talk about your cares and fears and concerns. What might you hope it looks like? And if you don't agree, husbands, it's not your job to make her. The Bible says just love your wife. Love her. Lay down your life for her. And leave her task to her responsibility before God. It's a very different picture, isn't it? Now, much of this, I think, speaks to the common um, uh, misunderstanding of what the woman's responsibility is. Um, what does it mean, submit yourself to your own husband? Um, well, given the context of Proverbs 31, the fully in control woman... Given uh, 1 Corinthians 7, where there's a mutuality of determining whether to continue in a sexual relationship, chase it up later, but you're only to, to refrain from sex, 1 Corinthians 7, unmutually, if you decide it mutually. Um, the co-heirs language, the made in the image of God, when you add all of these pieces in together, I take it what Paul means by submission is not she is to be subservient. It's not he is to be the dominant. It's none of those things. And I want to offer a word that I think makes best sense of what Paul means here in verse 22 in our cultural context. Because I think the word submit has got so much baggage. 
I'm going to suggest it's the word entrust. I think a way to capture what Paul means here is, wives, entrust yourself to your husband. Entrust yourself to him. Entrust yourself to his loving servant leadership. Entrust. Now, can you, what would it feel like to entrust yourself to him? I think that gives you a sense of what's being said here. Recognise that there is an order to the shape of family life. Recognise that there's, in being a woman, vulnerabilities and realities of risk that, that are there, that we can't pretend away and wish weren't the case. Recognise that the sexual revolution has not done good in all of this, but has actually brought much harm. Um, one of the other insights of Perry is that uh, we're living at a time, she notes, where we are in effectively a massive social experiment about men-women relationships. She notes that there's never been a culture that's actually pursued the way we're thinking about men and women relating before anywhere, which she says gives cause effectively to pause and say, really? Can we, is this really, this, is this going to bring utopia? No one's ever pulled it off anywhere else. Do we think we can? How arrogant do we think we are? Friends, uh, the, the first most significant sexual revolution was the New Testament, which massively transformed the way men and women related. Let me explain what I mean. In the 1960s, the revolution was, women, you can be free to express yourself sexually however you like. Unrestrained. Men, unrestrained. Revolution. The first century sexual revolution, men, you need to adopt the principle of love and so restrain your sexual promiscuity and commit yourself to one woman for life, for her good and for the children's good. That revolutionised human history. And there's much to consider about the impact of men actually taking that on, the, the incentivization of men actually committing themselves to one woman for life, the impact on families, the good it brought to society. There's much to consider there. So what do we say finally together? There'll be a question time if you want to come. So in five minutes after church, if you want to, I'll sit down here if you want to come and talk. But men, love your wives... Watch yourselves. Sense in yourself any need to control your wife and interrogate, interrogate why it might be there. What's going on that I feel like I need to control her? Because that's not what God's calling you to. Look hard at Proverbs 31. Could you rejoice in that woman's autonomy? Learn to see what's stopping you to begin dealing with it under God. And work at being a man that a woman can trust. Work at being a man that a woman could entrust herself to by getting her act together. Growing up. Being someone who takes seriously the pursuit of the things of Christ. Relationship with God. Leading a family in these things. Be someone who becomes the man a woman can trust. Women. If you're married amongst us, can I say this word to you kindly? 
trust your husband unless he's abusing you. And if he's abusing you and you're unsafe, get out. If he's abusing you, you're safe but being controlled and destroyed, talk to someone. Get help. Come to us. We want to be as helpful as we can. There's women on our pastoral team that you can make contact with. Get, get some help. But I dare say you want to be someone who can trust the man you married. Don't we all? You want to be able to entrust yourself to that man. What makes it hard? In the normal course of affairs where you're not, there's no abuse, what, what is making it hard? What do you need to work on? Pay attention to that. Honour God in the way you relate. And finally, trust God. Trust God. Make him the centre of your life, not your husband, not your family, not your career. Be the very thing that made the Proverb 31 woman beautiful. Fear God, trust him. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the profound wisdom that you bring to us in your word. Help us be discerning people. Help us be people that are not drifting along with a culture that's so messed up. Help us to think, wrestle with, understand deeply and help us appreciate that the word you've given us is so rich and good from a God who is good. Help us therefore trust you in it all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.